0: You see, what God says is that when we grow in this corruption and it spreads and spreads and we inwardly rot away, divine judgment is inevitable. That's our second thought. And God shows us that in several ways here throughout this passage. Let me walk you through two or three of them. In the first place, God says, your sin is always under my divine scrutiny. And therefore, unrepentant sin demands inevitable divine judgment. Look at verse 5. God saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth. Verse 11. The earth was corrupt before God. Verse 12. God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. You see, all three places. Sin is under the microscope of God. God scrutinizes our hearts. God scrutinizes sin. God sees everything. You remember that story, boys and girls, that I've said perhaps perhaps too many times to you, but I remind you of it once more, of those two little girls going to their, to their grandmother's house. Their mother said, Don't take any cupcakes. And the two girls carried cupcakes to the grandmother. One girl got halfway there, and she looked around. And she said, no one sees us. Let's just have one cupcake. And the other girl looked up and said, but someone does see us. Someone does see us. See, that's our problem. By nature, we're so corrupt that it doesn't matter to us. If God sees us, we're so walking apart from the consciousness of God. We're not walking Coram Dale in the consciousness, in the conscious presence of God. So we don't even care. If God sees us, we're more ashamed to have man see us. But then even, even that sometimes we don't matter as long as there are insignificant others in our lives. We don't even matter if they see us. Well, judgment, God says, is then inevitable. God saw. God saw. God saw. Three times. Genesis 6. And that's the prerequisite for divine judgment. That prefaces divine judgment. God saw. Am I speaking to someone tonight... is living in any unknown sin, perhaps you think the sin is secret. I say to you, my friend, tonight, God sees, God records, and if you don't repent, God will judge. God's judgment is inevitable upon all unrepentant sin. This is the message, the sad message, the true message of Genesis 6. God says, you never get away with any sin, even when you don't get caught by a human hand. You are in God's hand, and God knows and sees it all. Is that ever reality to you? Do you live under the consciousness of the all seeing eye of God? You remember that other story, boys and girls, about a man who was very sick. He was on his deathbed and he was still an atheist. He was still determined to, to raise his fist against God. And so he had a sign printed and put behind his bed. And the sign said, God is nowhere. God is nowhere. And there was a little girl. I think it was his niece or so, or perhaps his granddaughter. She came in the room and he said, can you read that sign? She was just learning to read. She was probably in first grade. And she looked at the sign and she said, God is. And then she moved the W over to the no. Now, here. The man I was astonished. God is now here. But it's always true, congregation. God is always now here. And God is never nowhere. That's the message of Genesis 6. These men took these daughters of a wicked line and they married them and they polluted themselves. God saw it all the while. God saw all the sin, all the corruption. And God said, because I see it, and they're not repenting, I will judge them, and I will send the flood, and I will destroy them. And he did. destroy them all, except the one family who feared God. The second thing we see about the inevitability of divine judgment here is that this judgment is done with incredible Decisiveness. God doesn't say to Noah, I'm contemplating destroying man. He says, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. You see, God doesn't deal in half measures with sin. The word translated destroy here is the same word used in other places in the Bible that speaks of blotting out. Blotting out names from records. Or wiping out dishes that are turned upside down. Wiping them out clean. Destroying everything in them. It's also used, by the way, for the blotting out of sin. So here you have a wonderful, solemn contrast. God will blot out these sinners of an unbelieving world as thoroughly as he blots out the sins of believing Noah and his children. If we're not in Christ, our blotting out will be to destruction. If we're in Christ, our blotting out will be to salvation. So God blots out the sin that He has not made. He blots out the sinner whom He has made. He spares not the work of His own hands. I, the Creator, will destroy my creation, man. You, you, you see, you, you feel the, the pathos with which God speaks here. I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. Oh, what a sad thing. But judgment demands it. Man has made his cup of iniquity full. God did not make man to destroy him. But he will do it. God did not make man for darkness, but for the light. And yet if he refuses to walk in the light, he shall walk in darkness. God did not make man for hell, nor hell for man, Yet the wicked shall be turned into hell. I will destroy the man whom I have created with my own hands. The hands that made man. Because man has destroyed himself. And this terrible, decisive judgment. God says, I will extend even to the beast. He adds here, I will destroy both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air. And that's what the flood did, wasn't it, boys and girls? Destroyed all kinds of the animal kingdom. And it reminds us, you see, no, there will be no more flood to destroy the earth. But it does remind us of the great day to come when God will destroy all the wicked and roll up the earth, as it were, as a scroll. It reminds us of 2 Peter 3, 6, and 7. I will destroy. But then thirdly, there is something wonderful about this inevitability of divine judgment, and that is to see out of what soil God's judgment grew as he looks upon sin and determines upon judgment. What soil this judgment grew out of? And let me say just two things here. First is this: it grew out of the soil of God's astounding patience. That is really how we ought to understand verse three of chapter six. And the Lord said, "My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he is also flesh, He is also mortal." Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Now I used to think, and perhaps you did too, that the hundred and twenty years here referred to the fact that man would no longer live eight, nine hundred years, but his, his life cycle would be reduced to about 120 years. That's not what it means. can't be what it means. Shem lived to be 600 years after this. But what God is saying here is, I've been patient this far, the cup of iniquity is full, But I'm going to give another 120 years, while Noah's building the ark, 120 more years of my patience, to call men and women, boys and girls, to repentance. And all the while knowing that none of them would respond. Noah would be a preacher for 120 years without a single convert, outside of his own family. And yet God has this extraordinary patience. He suffers with these people another 120 years. And all the while, these people, you can read of that in 2 Peter 3, they are mocking with God. They are mocking with judgment. Listen to Peter. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days, scoffers walking after their own lusts, like in the days of Noah, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. But beloved, he goes on verse 8, Be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So what is Peter saying and what is Genesis 6 saying? They're saying the same thing. They're saying that God's judgment does not arise out of an immediate whim of anger. God is not some uncontrolled father who sees his child doing something wrong and immediately rises up in anger against him rather than seeing the real needs of his child. God's judgment is a restrained force that he has held back for generations. It seldom breaks out on an individual immediately when he has sinned. God usually gives us warnings, and more warnings, and pleadings, and invitations, and he showers his goodness upon us. And the very worst thing we can do is not let that goodness bring us to repentance. The very worst thing we can do is presume upon God's patience, And go to the borderline of his own text. God is not to be mocked. What a man sows, he shall reap. Don't do that, congregation. Don't destroy your own selves. In Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11, we read of it in a very powerful way. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them, to do evil. Because God doesn't punish you. You know what that's like? You say, well, I did this, or I did that sin. God didn't punish me, And so I'll do it again. And you're, you're testing the patience of God. Peter says it will come. It will come. The judgment will come. It will come as a thief in the night. But it's God's goodness, you see, that he's patient with you. And he's been extraordinarily patient, hasn't he, with every one of us. No, he won't give us 120 years. He may not even give us another week. We don't know, you see. But the question is this, is all God striving with you? That's what Genesis 6.3 calls it, striving with man. Is all God striving with you in vain? Are you pushing away those strivings, those gospel invitations, those providential callings, the calling of sickness, the calling of blessing and of goodness? God is calling you every day. Will you and I, like Israel, vex the Holy Ghost? How long shall we escape? if we neglect so great salvation stay with us we'll be right back do you want to dig deeper in your study of reformed theology the all of life for god podcast presented by reformation heritage books offers you weekly sermons audiobook chapters and interviews that will help strengthen your relationship with jesus christ so what are you waiting for Just search All of Life for God wherever you get your podcast and start listening today. Presented by Reformation Heritage Books. Well then secondly, this judgment grows out of the soil of God's own broken heart. That may sound strange to you, but look at verse 6 and 7. Repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. Now we have to be careful here. God is not a man, Numbers twenty three nineteen says, that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. God can never be accused of being capricious or changing his plans in response to our our unpredictability. But God is reacting here to the seriousness of the situation. He's not taken by surprise. But he's showing that he has holy anger against human sin. He's responding to humanity's gross wickedness. And it's exactly because he is unchangeable in his character and unchangeable in his attitude to sin that there is this tremendous groaning and response on the part of God as he responds to the depths of depravity found on the earth. The word grieved here is the strongest possible Hebrew word. It actually means a holy, indignant rage. God is filled with anger. Holy rage. That man has made himself to be what he is. When God made him to be what God made him to be. The crown of his creation has cast himself into the dirt and has expunged from his own life, as it were, the very glory of God and the purpose of his creation. God is grieved in his heart. In his heart. It's a special word here, too. It means the the inmost being, the locus of one's thought and feeling and will. The inmost being of God. Is grieved, broken as it were, full of sorrow. Now, some people say God has no emotions. It is true that God is a God of simplicity. There's only one God. He has no parts. He's not like us where our emotions are part of us and our will is part of us. God is one. But God certainly expresses himself, doesn't he? anthropomorphically that is in the way of being a man so we can understand by strong emotions Jesus was filled with emotions wasn't he and the Holy Spirit is also able to be grieved and vexed and resisted so God is looking at this scene just as a man would look at it he's expressing himself in human language it's a metaphor here God has no physical heart of course but God is showing his great anger, his great feelings, his great hostility toward our depravity. God is grieved at his heart. These are his own words, congregation. Let's not explain them away. Let's not minimize them. God is grieved at the change that sin has made in the works of his hands. He's grieved at the dishonor brought upon himself. He's grieved at man's self-ruination. When God shows us who we are, we will understand something of this grief. Because then we will become grieved with ourselves. And we will understand God's grief with us. Then it will be me in Genesis 6 verse 5. God saw my wickedness. I repented the Lord that he made me on the earth. And it grieved him at his heart. We will feel that. The reality. Oh, that I am an obstacle to the living God. I'm a sinner in his sight. God has every right to be angry with me. To cast me away. To reject me altogether. And still. Still I'm on this earth. Still He calls me. Still I'm in the day of His patience. Still today, His holy love is being offered to me. Still today, He says to you, sinner, with whom He has every right to be angry and cast you away, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered thee as a hen gathers his chicks under her wings. But ye would This is the broken heart of God, I say it with reverence, over the ancient world. My dear unconverted friend, God is calling you on every hand. He's still patient with you today. But I do say to you, you know what happens, don't you? When the chicks don't come to the shelter of the hen's wings... Some will be scooped up by a hawk and devoured. Others will be destroyed by the cold. But all will miss the warmth and the safety of the hen. You simply cannot find real life apart from Jesus. Jerusalem was destroyed in a terrible way. You know the history. Dreadful history. Don't go that same way. Hear the poet Joseph Hart when he said, Ye sinners, seek his grace, whose wrath ye cannot bear. Fly to the shelter of his cross and find salvation there. Some months ago, a very bright light in the midst of the dark chapter of Genesis 3. And in this chapter perhaps the second darkest chapter in the Bible, there is also a bright light at the end of our text. wonderful, wonderful note of hope. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The divine judge is also divine savior. And the savior works in the heart of Noah, and Noah begins seeking. If you, if, if you found something, the implication is you're, you're seeking for it, right? He's seeking for it. He's seeking for God. He realizes the poverty of the world around him. He realizes his own depravity. He seeks for God. He seeks for grace. And the very God of grace, who's already at work in him, grants him the grace of deliverance through an ark. God says in verse 14, Go, make an ark. And we know We hope to see that in the future, that this ark is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God's grace comes to Noah in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it comes to Noah through faith. So there are two aspects here of the method of God's salvation. The first is that it is a method of grace. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now this word grace is used here for the first time in the Bible. It's used 168 more times. And with its um, various derivatives, it's used 204 more times. The whole Bible, like a scarlet thread, post fall, runs through the channel of grace. Even in the darkest of times, God sends grace. God delights in grace. Sadly, the line of Seth, the godly aspect of the line of Seth had grown very small. But even there, in the line of Seth, God kept Noah. God kept his grace alive in a son of man and in that man's family. And so in the midst of the black, dark, frightful situation, which would demand the destruction of all mankind, except Noah, Noah sees hope arise. God's plan, God's purpose, God's provision, God's love, God's Son, all typified by the ark of salvation. God says, go make an ark. The ark was a hiding place from judgment. The judgment was inevitable. But God says, Noah, I will give you a hiding place in the judgment. And that hiding place looms large in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9 as a symbol of the glorious grace of God. So the method of salvation is only through this refuge in the midst of judgment only through Jesus. And I ask you tonight, do you know that for your own soul? Do you know what it means to fly to the ark of God's provision for grace, for sanctifying grace, for justifying grace, for sufficient grace, for accompanying grace, for following grace, for restoring grace, for every kind of grace, all through the ark, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, but how do I lay hold of that ark? Well, by faith. By gracious faith. Faith and grace are never competitors. Sola gratia is never in competition with sola fide. Grace works through faith. And so we read in Hebrews 11, By faith Noah, being warned of God, took heed. Thank you for listening to Doctrine for Life with Dr. Joel Beakey. If you were encouraged by this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. To enjoy more resources from the pen and pulpit of Dr. Beaky, please visit joelbeakey.org.